The race is on to find long-term shelter for people who survived last week's earthquake in Turkey and Syria, which left more than 33,000 people dead. It's Monday, February 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, U.S. fighter jets have shot down three unidentified flying objects in the last few days, but the Pentagon says not to worry. We did not assess that the recent objects posed any direct threat to people on the ground, and we are laser-focused on confirming their nature and purpose. Also this hour, the utility Eversource agreed to provide benefits to residents of East Boston, where it's building a controversial substation. But those customers are learning they may be the ones paying for those benefits. And the political mess in Berlin, Germany, which had a do-over election this weekend. In sports, Kansas City wins a Super Bowl, mostly cloudy, in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The earthquake death toll in Turkey and Syria has now surpassed 35,000 people. It's been a week since the heavy tremor rocked the region. The CEO of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, says aid is streaming into Turkey, but conditions are different in war-torn Syria. On the Turkish side of the border, you've got a very strong government. You've got a massive aid effort underway. On the Syrian side of the border, it's people who've frankly been abandoned over the last 10 years. And the grave danger of a secondary crisis, ill health, injuries not treated, economics just out of the window, because the aid is blocked across the Turkish-Syrian border. He says the U.N. has determined the fastest way for help is to send aid across the Turkish-Syrian border. But Miliband says several crossing points at the Syrian border were closed by a Russian veto at a Security Council meeting two years ago. He's calling on the Security Council to open the crossing points immediately. The U.S. Air Force has shot down three mystery aircraft in as many days. This comes after the takedown earlier this month of the larger Chinese balloon. The latest mystery object was downed yesterday over Lake Huron off Michigan. But as NPR's Greg Myrie reports, officials have not yet provided details on any of them. According to U.S. officials, the three airborne objects share a number of similarities. All were small and slow moving, none had people on board, and there's no indication they were involved in spying. Air Force General Glenn Van Herc is the commander of NORAD. What we're seeing is very, very small objects. I'm not going to go into detail about shapes or anything like that. It's a very, very slow object in the space, if you will, going at the speed of the wind, essentially. The general said it's not yet clear who owned the aircraft. Recovery efforts are ongoing at the three sites, in Lake Huron, off the coast of Alaska, and in western Canada. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Reproductive rights advocates have rallied in Amarillo. As Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton reports, they focused on a lawsuit that could block access to a form of medical abortion. About 150 people gathered outside the county courthouse in Amarillo where a federal judge could overturn the FDA's approval of mifepristone, a medication which is sometimes prescribed to terminate pregnancies. They say anti-abortion rights activists filed a lawsuit with District Judge Matthew Kazmierich, who was appointed by former President Donald Trump and has been openly opposed to Roe v. Wade. Women's March spokesperson Tamika Middleton. Judge Matthew Kazmierich will hear a lawsuit with no legal basis. No medical basis, no scientific basis, no moral basis, challenging the FDA approval of mifepristone. If the judge overturns the FDA's approval of the drug, experts say the Biden administration would likely appeal that decision. 
I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The special state refund Massachusetts residents received last year will not be taxed by the IRS, at least in most cases. Last week, the IRS was telling taxpayers here to hold off on filing. The agency needed to figure out if it was going to tax the refund many people got because of a budget surplus. Belmont CPA Glenn Logan says the majority of those who got state refunds do not have to report it as income to the feds. Clear as mud is usually what happens when you're dealing with some of these tax issues. But the bottom line is that most of the population who have received these tax refunds won't get taxed and it won't be a tax issue. The federal tax filing deadline this year is April 18th. Governor Maura Healey still isn't saying who will replace the head of the Massachusetts State Police. Colonel Christopher Mason will step down from the job on Friday. He held that role for more than three years. He's been with the state police for nearly four decades. As superintendent, Mason oversaw training updates and implementation of a body camera program. The second of two candidates for the chancellor position at UMass Amherst is visiting the campus today. Javier Reyes is currently the interim chancellor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Reyes will be hosting in-person and online forums to meet students and faculty. Those events are happening later today. Homeowners in central Massachusetts could get help replacing the concrete foundations of their homes. An iron mineral mixed into the foundations of some homes is causing them to crack. Investigators tell the Telegram and Gazette up to 2,000 homes could be affected. Lawmakers want the state to set up a fund to pay for the foundations to be replaced. They also want home inspectors to start testing regularly for the mineral. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with events, book recommendations, book clubs, children's story hour, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. Make it four wins in a row for the Celtics. They beat the Memphis Grizzlies yesterday at the Garden. The final was 119-109. to The Seas are off today. They'll visit the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. The Kansas City Chiefs are this year's Super Bowl champions. They beat the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35 to last night in Arizona. Mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will get into the mid-40s. Overnight cloudy with a low in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid to upper 40s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 7.06. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. Order yours by noon today for delivery on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. Choose your gift by noon to get it delivered tomorrow to your Valentine. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. There are four options to choose from. And Amory Sievertson of our Endless Thread podcast has joined me to tell you about them. Good morning, Amory. So good to see you. Good morning, Rupa. So good to see you. And happy Galentine's Day. Are you familiar with the Galentine's Day? I am not. Day? Please explain. I think it was made popular by Parks and Rec, but it's it's the day before Valentine's Day where you celebrate a gal in your life. So I'm celebrating you right now in this moment by telling our listeners about these four arrangements that they can get for a gal or another person in their life. 
Yeah, we we have one or two dozen long stem red roses. That means if you hold it in your teeth, you're probably going to hit the person next to you. Yeah, the, this is the, the box stems right are as here. majestic as the flat. That's right, the box is taking up the it's table. Huge. We also have something called the ultimate romance arrangement. This has Vanda orchids, raspberry roses, deep plum ranunculus. It's a little early in the morning to be saying ranunculus, yeah, but I I'm did doing not it know anyway. How to say that. Thanks yeah. for doing that for me. <laughs> it's got Italian sweet pea, lavender lilac. Uh, the, the the quick way to describe this is it is so majestic. Majestic. It's this it's this delicate, rich, it's kind of sexy, I'm going to say it. And then we have the Flower of the Month subscription where, you know, you can send flowers to a loved one in your life every single month. And right now it has rich red roses, some nice white detail to it that is beyond my knowledge, but it's, it's adorable and uh, it's exactly what you want. It's the message that you want to send to someone in your life, the same way that we hope that you'll send us the message here at WBUR that you care about us day in and day out. And I don't mean about me and Rupa personally. I mean you care about the news and information that you get from WBUR. You rely on that information day in and day out. So why not pair your support of WBUR with a great gift to someone in your life. Or really, you know, you might think about it the other way around, that you want to send a great gift to someone in your life and you get to support WBUR at mm-hmm. the same time. That's just smart. So again, as Rupa said, you only have until noon today to place that order. So should they call a number, Rupa? Should they go to the website? Yes, What's the best way? Well, a lot of people go to the website. It's WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And I actually sent some of these uh, flowers of the month subscription to my mom last year. She used to say thank you so profusely every month and I just forgot. I forgot that I had sent them. <laughs> and every month she'd be like, oh my gosh, thank you. They're beautiful. And I'd be like, what? That's so what nice. You're taking care of her. Yeah. You're taking care of me Without BUR. even remembering it. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and do it by noon today to get it delivered to your Valentine tomorrow. It's important. Noon. Today. That's the deadline. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The U.S. Air Force is flying overtime. U.S. fighter jets have shot down three mystery aircraft in as many days. The unidentified objects were tracked and then shot down after entering North American airspace. Uh, it's a lot. So what exactly is going on? To bring us up to date, we're joined by NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie. Greg, uh, they're happening rapidly, it seems like. So what happened? I mean, it's almost hard to keep track. Yeah, that's right. And so the latest was Sunday. A U.S. fighter jet shot down a small unmanned flying object over Lake Huron, which is just off the shore of Michigan. And then going back to Saturday, an Air Force plane working in coordination with Canada shot down an aircraft over western Canada. Canada is working to recover this, and it's calling it a cylindrical object. And the third one was Friday when the U.S. shot down an aircraft just off the northeast coast of Alaska. It landed off the coast. Um, It's described as the size of a small car, but weather conditions have prevented the military from reaching it, according to U.S. officials. And all three came after the U.S. shootdown of of China's uh, spy balloon. Are these latest incidents uh, linked to espionage? So they're still investigating. They don't have all the material, but at this point, there's no indication these were spy craft. Now, Air Force General Glenn Van Herc, he's the NORAD commander, he gave a briefing on Sunday night. Here's some of what he said. What we're seeing is very, very small objects 
I'm not going to go into detail about shapes or anything like that. It's a very, very slow object in the space, if you will, going at the speed of the wind, essentially. So one of the challenges, he said, is that the fighter jets are streaking past these objects at hundreds of miles an hour, and it's been very hard for pilots to get a good, sustained look. Now, Van Herc and other U.S. officials are stressing a few points here. All these aircraft that were shot down are much smaller than China's spy balloon. A none had crew on board. U.S. officials said they didn't pose an imminent threat, but they were shot down out of an abundance of caution. So, Greg, then how should we think about this? I mean, a mystery aircraft entering U.S. airspace sounds scary, but is it just that we're just paying more attention to these things since the Chinese spy balloon? Well, A, certainly it seems to be the latter. Now, the Air Force is saying it has recalibrated its radar systems, or or speed gates as they're called, which were geared to look more for things like incoming missiles. And the U.S. made this adjustment after the encounter with China's spy balloon. Again, here's General Van Herc. So if you had radars on all the time that were looking at anything from zero speed uh, up to, say, 100, you would see a lot more information. We have adjusted some of those uh, gates to give us better fidelity on uh, seeing slower objects. And so as we learn more about these objects that were shot down, the U.S. may have to decide whether it wants to track every small, slow-moving object and whether the Air Force should scramble the jets every time there's a mysterious blip on the radar. Yeah, we mentioned that Chinese spy balloon was shot down just off the coast of South Carolina. How is that investigation going? So a U.S. official says the balloon's payload with the valuable technical equipment is believed to be intact at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in about 50 feet of water. Now, if this can be recovered and analyzed, the U.S. could get a much better understanding of exactly what the Chinese were up to. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks a lot. My pleasure. All these unidentified objects floating up in the sky are bringing up fresh questions about global surveillance, national defense, and diplomacy. We've called up David Gompert, a longtime presidential advisor in all of those areas. He has served five administrations from Reagan all the way through Obama. He was acting director of national intelligence in the Obama administration, and he's now a visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. Good morning, sir. It's good to have you with us. Good morning, Alpha. So that suspected Chinese spy balloon, the one that was shot down on February 4th, it led Secretary of State Antony Blinken to put off his planned diplomatic trip to China. And one of the goals of that trip was improving, you know, basic communications between the two countries. So I want to understand what is missing right now in the way that the United States and China are speaking with one another. Uh, What is missing is dialogue. The uh, U.S.-China strategic nuclear relationship which is stable because of mutual deterrence, Mm -hmm. but it is fraught with suspicion. If the Chinese weren't suspicious, they wouldn't be sending a spy balloon over the United States. If we weren't suspicious, we wouldn't be so uh, worked up about the implications of the Chinese spy um, balloon activities. And that level of suspicion is um, very troublesome and potentially dangerous. What we need is not simply a hotline. We need a dialogue. A dialogue. You mentioned a hotline, though, there. And and I want to ask you a follow-up on that. There were reports that when this first Chinese spy balloon was spotted, 
Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin tried to contact his Chinese counterpart by means of a special crisis line. Uh, he was not able to get through with success. Uh, and I wanted to understand, I mean, are both countries, do you feel, the, the United States and China, receptive to this kind of direct communication between top officials in moments of crisis? Uh, uh, the short answer is no. Uh, let me explain, if I might, Asma, mm-hmm. what, uh, what this uh, operation by the Chinese is and what it's not. Uh, it's criminal. Uh, one can fly uh, satellites uh, anytime uh, for virtually any purpose as, as long as they're in space. But in the atmosphere, flying in another country's airspace is a crime. So we've had crimes committed against us by the Chinese, and we are right to be outraged. Secondly, uh, it's a political blunder, as far as I can see, because the Chinese should have known uh, that at least the balloon, if not other objects, Mm -hmm. would be detected and neutralized, and that's exactly what has happened. So it's an embarrassment to the Chinese. Um, Why are the Chinese doing this? It's not because there's an opportunity for China to take a huge leap forward in strategic surveillance and to surpass the United States. It's quite the opposite. This reflects the fact that the Chinese are way behind the United States in strategic surveillance. Um, And they're trying to catch up by whatever means they can, including surveillance balloons. But... David you, had mentioned, sorry, oh, no, David, you had mentioned earlier, though, this need to build dialogue, to have constructive dialogue. Yes. And if, you know, hotlines are not working in moments of crisis, then you sort of have to go back and say, well, how do you have these, uh, how do you reestablish trust? And right now, when you look at the relations between the United States and China, they are already strained. What are some of the roadblocks to establishing trust? How can that happen? Well, I'm not talking about a hotline. That, of course, is very mm-hmm. important in moments of crisis. I'm talking about an ongoing dialogue about the purpose. Each power assigns to nuclear weapons, why it has nuclear weapons, why it has the nuclear weapons it has, in order to clarify, um, uh, eliminate, or at least alleviate misconceptions, address suspicions, and I believe uh, improve stability and security at the nuclear strategic level that way. That's a dialogue. That's mm-hmm. a process. And how do you build um, that dialogue? Well, I think this is an opportunity. Um, a lot of, um, a lot of um, U.S. Um, talking heads are saying we should uh, be outraged and we should have no communications with the Chinese about this. We should retaliate in some way. I think we should do the opposite. Mm-hmm. We should insist that the Chinese join the United States in a deep and continuing conversation Mm -hmm. about the purpose of nuclear weapons so we can clear up misconceptions and suspicions which could lead to instability and even conflict. Okay. David, we've got to leave it there, but thank you very much for taking the time. You're quite welcome. David Gompert is a visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy and a longtime national security expert. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, and I'm the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. 
I recently bought two copies of the picture book, Will It Be Okay? One for my kids and one for the children of a dear friend. The book by Crescent Dragon Wagon was first published in 1977. The entirety of the story is a little girl asking her mom questions. What if there's thunder and lightning? What if I forget my lines in the school play? And finally, the big one, what if you die? The mom has a sensible, heartfelt approach for every conundrum, even the last one. Yes, my love, it will. It will be okay, she says. As ever, we're looking for stories that take on the big questions, for essays that seek hope and offer perspective and understanding. You can help us do that work by supporting WBUR. Send someone you love Winston Flowers. Let that be your way to offer love and comfort. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Like Chloe said, it will be okay. If you're scrambling to find a florist who can still get flowers to your Valentine tomorrow, look no further than WBUR.org. We've teamed up with Winston Flowers so you can show your love for your Valentine and at the same time help the WBUR community raise the money we need to bring you the journalism you rely on. And if you act by noon today, when you act by noon today, you can still show your love for your Valentine and for WBUR. Just go to WBUR.org to see the options or call one 800 909-9287. And I'm joined this morning by Amory Sievertson. Good morning, Rupa. And you know, anytime there, a holiday like this comes around, there are lots of ways to spend your money on people you love. And we offer this because this is such a rich way to do that, because you're not just getting flowers for your loved one. The best flowers in the area, may mind you, but you're not just getting great flowers for your loved one. You're also supporting WBUR. You're supporting everything that you care about. You're supporting our great climate coverage, for example, that we have coming up here in a fantastic series from our climate team. So do more with your money, with your Valentine's money by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. I'm Ewan Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. There's plenty of mystique tied to chocolate. Throughout the centuries, it's been thought of as an aphrodisiac and even a health elixir. In recent years, scientists have been studying how antioxidant compounds in chocolate may influence heart health. And now the FDA has some new guidance. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now to discuss. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. We tend to think of chocolate as candy, but it's not like a Hershey bar comes off the tree. Yeah, what we call chocolate comes from the tropical cacao tree, also known as 
Theobroma cacao, which translates in ancient Greek as food of the gods. And that's really what chocolate was going back centuries. Mayan aristocrats consumed lots of it and were even buried with it. I spoke to this guy, Nat Bledder. He's an ethnobotanist who has studied cocoa and points to a bunch of compounds in it, including stimulants like caffeine and theobromine. He says, just like for all of us today... Coco probably gave these early adopters in Mesoamerica some energy, gave them a lift, made them feel good. We don't have exact written records of what the Maya thought cacao and chocolate was really good for, but it's clear that it was very highly valued and helped people get into the afterlife and survive in the afterlife. So that's the mythology around it, Layla. But what has become a serious scientific pursuit is exactly how cocoa and chocolate may influence our cardiovascular systems. Cardiovascular systems, this is something about dark chocolate being healthy. That's what you hear people say. What exactly have scientists found out? So they have focused in on bioactive compounds in cocoa called flavonoids or polyphenols. These are antioxidants with anti-inflammatory properties. And there's long been hints that at high concentrations, these compounds may help protect against disease. I spoke to Dr. Joanne Manson of Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard School of Public Health. She is one of the authors of a recent study where they recruited a whole bunch of adults, about 20,000 of them aged 60 and older, who agreed to consume a lot of cocoa flavanols, or placebo, for several years to try to figure out how it may influence the risk of heart disease. Now, I spoke to her when she was on her way to a meeting. We did see promising signals for prevention of cardiovascular disease events. So we actually saw a 27% reduction of cardiovascular death. Hey, I mean, that's a big reduction. Is this what what does this mean? I should point out some people in the study still had heart attacks, but the researchers did see this decrease in deaths. Now, what they think happens is that the bioactive compounds in cocoa help the body produce more nitric oxide, which promotes increased blood flow by expanding or dilating blood vessels. Now, Dr. Manson says they want to do a follow up to see if they can replicate these findings. But she says we should not think of chocolate as a health food. Okay, why not? Because that's what I want. (laughs) Well, there's a hitch to that study. The people in that study were not eating chocolate bars. They were taking capsules, two per day, that were filled with high concentrations of flavanols extracted from cocoa. Okay, so what is the a capsule that's not chocolate that's made with cocoa? <laughs> well, extracts of cocoa flavanols don't really taste like chocolate, not what we're used to. More like cocoa powder that bakers use. You want to give it a try? I actually like just have... just straight cocoa powder. Oh, okay. <laughs> Here you go. Okay, this is not what I was expecting when you said I could eat chocolate <laughs> during this conversation. You're disappointed. I can tell. This is just powder in a cup, but I will taste it. Okay, that is not delicious. Yeah, without the sugar, Mm -mm. the fat. Doesn't taste so good, right? No, and I love chocolate. (laughs) So where does this leave us, the chocolate-loving public? Is regular chocolate healthy? Is it not healthy? You know, it's a bit tricky to answer that question as a yes-no. The FDA has just weighed in on a long-time petition. A big cocoa manufacturer asked the FDA if it could use a health claim on its cocoa powder products that contain high amounts of these flavanols. And the FDA has now agreed to claims like this one. It says cocoa flavanols and high flavanol cocoa powder may reduce the risk 
may reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. But the FDA has concluded that there is very limited scientific evidence for this claim. Hmm. Doesn't sound like a (laughs) resounding endorsement of its health benefits. I asked one nutrition scientist, Christopher Gardner at Stanford, what he makes of this health claim. How is a consumer going to interpret that? How is that helpful? He says it's totally confusing. Yeah, I mean, the FDA, what's it saying? Maybe? <laughs> More or less. I mean, the FDA reviewed a whole bunch of studies evaluating cocoa flavanols, chocolate, and heart health. And Christopher Gardner says he agrees with the FDA's conclusion, which is that some studies point to benefits, others don't. It's inconclusive. So Gardner says when he's asked, is dark chocolate healthy? His response is this. Are you going to have a jelly bean or are you going to have this square of dark chocolate. If that's my choice, jelly beans or dark chocolate, can I come up with a rational preference? Yep, dark chocolate. How come? Oh, the flavanols, because the jelly beans basically just sugar. So he says for him, the point of eating chocolate is to savor it, not to focus too much on whether it's a health food. People need to have some fun and enjoy it. That's what it's for. Especially this week. Yep, Valentine's Day. A lot of people are going to celebrate with chocolate. Yep, and Nat Bletcher, the ethnobotanist who also runs a small chocolate business in Hawaii called Madre Chocolates, he likes to walk people through how to get the most out of every bite using all of their senses. You can smell it before you put it in your mouth. You can even listen to your chocolate. And when you break it, does it have a good snap? Um, And let it melt on your tongue and see if you can get all the different flavors. Just like wine, chocolate can have a lot of these unique and interesting flavors. Listen to your chocolate. I think I'll start doing that. And <laughs> NPR's Allison Aubrey, thank you so much. Thank you, Layla. Support for NPR health coverage comes from the American Lung Association with support from Sanofi. They're working to raise awareness about RSV, the leading cause of hospitalizations in all babies under one. Learn more at lung.org RSV. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Pentagon says it's closely monitoring U.S. airspace after fighter jets shot down another unidentified object over Michigan yesterday. Defense Department official Melissa Dalton says the military acted out of caution. We have been more closely scrutinizing our airspace at these altitudes, including enhancing our radar, which may at least partly explain the increase in objects that we've detected over the past week. U.S. and Canadian officials say they're investigating three unidentified flying objects shot down over North America in the past three days. The Kansas City Chiefs beat the Philadelphia Eagles in this year's Super Bowl 38-35 to last night. NPR's Tom Goldman reports the Chiefs kicked a 27-yard field goal with just seconds to go in the fourth quarter, giving them the win. 
First half, the Eagles were the dominant team they'd been all season, led by their great young quarterback, Jalen Hurts. And a strong defense, they went out to a 10-point lead at halftime. Now, particularly worrying for Kansas City, late in the half, quarterback Patrick Mahomes aggravated that high ankle sprain he suffered earlier in the playoffs. He led the Chiefs to three second-half touchdowns and the drive that resulted in the winning field goal by Kansas City with eight seconds left. That's NPR's Tom Goldman reporting. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. A fourth person has been jailed in connection with a scandal at the European Parliament. Terry Schultz reports a Belgian member of the European Union's legislature has been charged with corruption, money laundering, and membership in a criminal organization. Mark Tarabella has proclaimed his innocence since the Cuttergate scandal broke two months ago. The scandal involves current and former EU lawmakers allegedly engaged in a cash-for-influence operation to benefit the Gulf country. But a Belgian judge determined Saturday there is enough reason to believe Tarabella was involved to keep him in jail, pending another hearing Thursday. A former parliamentary colleague of Tarabella, Italian peer Antonio Panzeri, has admitted running the operation and is cooperating with Belgian authorities. He says he paid more than $100,000 euros to Tarabella to try to improve political and economic ties between the EU and Qatar. A former vice president of the European Parliament and her partner have been in jail since December, along with Panzeri. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Demonstrations are taking place outside of the Parliament building in Israel. The protests are being held ahead of a preliminary vote on a bill that would give politicians greater power over appointing judges. The vote is part of a judicial overhaul proposed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. The plan that has divided the country has also drawn concern from President Biden. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Nonprofits from around the region are gathering supplies to send to earthquake survivors in Turkey and Syria. Alden Bourne reports on one group in western Massachusetts. In a large room at the Peace Valley Foundation in Agawam, eight women sort bags of donated winter clothing. Halil Kazoo volunteers with a group which serves the local Turkish community. He says the more urgent need now is for personal care products. We need baby diapers, we need toilet papers, and we need wet towels for the babies, toothbrushes, toothpaste, and the feminine products, the feminine pads and everything they need. Kazoo says his parents, his five sisters and brothers, and their children live near the epicenter and had to flee their homes. He says they've moved from sleeping in cars to sharing two shipping containers. The donated goods will be driven to the Turkish consulate in Boston, then put on a cargo plane for Turkey. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. A group of Massachusetts lobster fishers is suing the federal government for closing fishing grounds in Massachusetts Bay. The closure was put in place to protect endangered right whales from being caught in fishing gear. The Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association calls the closure illegal. The group also says it will hurt the industry's economy. We could hit record high temperatures later this week with more 60s in the forecast. The warmer weather this winter is causing an early start to the maple sugaring season. Winston Petkoff is with the Massachusetts Maple Producers Association. He says the sap is running a month earlier than usual, and that's making the season unpredictable. The inconsistency is really the big change. And where sugar makers used to know there was a three-week period, that's when they were going to make 75% of their crop for the year. Now, you might get some runs in January or early February. 
Petkoff says a few members are already making their first batches of maple syrup. The Massachusetts Maple Producers Association estimates 70,000 gallons of syrup are made in the state annually. It's 7.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. The Celtics beat the Memphis Grizzlies 119-109 to yesterday at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. The men's college hockey beanpot final is tonight at the Garden. It's Harvard against Northeastern for the title. In your forecast, mostly overcast and windy today with a high in the mid-40s. Tonight, still overcast and a low in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, clear skies with temperatures rising to the upper 40s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington. And I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. The Turkish government says over a million people are living in temporary shelters a week after an earthquake hit parts of the country and neighboring Syria. The death toll from the powerful 7.8 magnitude quake now stands at more than 33,000. And funerals are continuing all across the region. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us now from one of those funeral sites in Turkey. Jason, what are you seeing? You know, the number of dead here is so overwhelming that officials have set up a mass grave on a hillside just east of the city of Marash. There are these long lines of fresh mounds on the, the hill. Uh, in any other time, you know, this would be a really spectacular spot where I am right now. There's these snow-capped mountains across the valley, but now it has become this assembly line for burying the dead. Corpses, are, they're coming in in pickup trucks, they're coming in in ambulances, in vans from the morgues. The police identify the ones that they can. Then there are these 19 white tents at the top of the hill where the bodies are ceremonially washed. Then further down the hill, there are these backhoes that are digging trenches. And as soon as the trenches are open, men, uh, mourners come, they lower the body bags in. Then there's this sort of rotating chorus of sorrow here, of family members crying and moms praying over the graves. And then they move on and the, the backhoe cuts another trench. Is there a best guess on how many people have been buried where you are? You know, we've actually been asking that question here, and no one can give us an exact number at the moment because it keeps changing. But based on the numbers that are written on the graves, it's at least 4,000 just in this site alone. Wow, that's awful. Um, and this is just one place uh, among many in this uh, area that covers hundreds of miles. What are you seeing uh, where you are that's happening uh, somewhere else? Yeah, you know, Marish, where I am here, it's in the northern part of this massive quake zone. Some of the worst hit places in Turkey are in Hatay in the south. Uh, we are seeing funerals and burials happening all over the place, everywhere. And, and one of the things about this disaster is that it hit when most people were home asleep. So you're getting entire families being killed together. And we go to some of these funerals, and for surviving relatives, it's particularly hard because in an instant, that extended family, which is so important in Turkey, may have been cut in half or, or even worse. 
And while people are, are burying their dead, I mean, the reality of this is that the window for finding survivors is, is closing, what, in about a week? And yet some people are still being pulled out alive. Yeah, there have been some remarkable recoveries. Even today, rescuers pulled a 40-year-old woman alive out of the debris of a class building in earthquake-damaged region of Turkey. But rescuers are saying that it's getting to the point where it's unlikely that very many more people should be expected to be found alive. You know, it's been a week, it's been freezing at night. Rescuers in Syria announced several days ago that they were focusing on recovering bodies now in, instead of rescue operations. And the chance of finding many more people alive, rescuers here is, say, is slim. And Jason, one more thing really quick. People are angry there, right, because of the recovery efforts. Some people are angry about the recovery efforts. There's also growing frustration about potentially that some of these buildings collapsed because of shoddy construction work. Uh, so there's been some arrests that happened over the weekend. Mainly people are dealing with grief, but yes, there is frustration that's also building in the midst of this disaster. That's NPR's Jason Bobian in Turkey. Jason, thanks. You're welcome. So there's a cultural stereotype that implies Germans are organized and efficient. Local elections in Berlin are proving that is not necessarily true. In 2021, Berlin's state and municipal election was so chaotic, the results were annulled. Voters went to the polls again yesterday for a redo. Many Berliners see the debacle as a sign of deeper problems with how the city is run. As Mie Nicholson reports. It's morning rush hour and Andreas Schmidt is late for work because of delays on the subway. Nothing in this city works anymore. It's not just the subway system. Dealing with authorities and getting paperwork done is agony. Schmidt has just moved house and is required to register his new address with the city authorities in person within two weeks. But he can't get an appointment. Above ground, Dini's Atash is waiting for a bus and has time to share her latest administrative nightmare. I became a German citizen years ago, but the authorities recently asked to see my certificate of naturalization, which I've lost. I can't get a replacement copy and they won't accept my German passport, even though it was issued by the very same office. Berlin Daily, Der Tagesspiegel, runs a column that scrutinizes this kind of Kafka-esque bureaucracy. Lorenz Marold is the newspaper's editor-in-chief and has reported on the capital since reunification. City officials have perfected a kind of well-ordered, systematic incompetence. When there's a problem, it lands on somebody else's desk. And when there's money to dish out, everybody is suddenly involved. Either way, nothing gets done. Marot says this coordinated gridlock is a liability. A school has to jump through up to 14 administrative hoops to get the city to paint the zebra crossing outside the entrance, meaning it can take years. The structure of Berlin's government has something to do with all this. Berlin has a Senate, which functions as both city hall and state government. But its authority is challenged by no fewer than 12 district councils. Quite often, Berlin's state government ends up dealing with the smallest problems, while the district administrations discuss world peace. Berlin's bureaucratic morass counters the city's more auspicious international image. Its rich history, its art scene and nightlife have long been a draw to outsiders. More recently, the city has attracted tech entrepreneurs. Christian Müller is a venture capital investor and chairs the board of the German Startup Association. 
Berlin became an international startup hub, not because of Berlin, but despite Berlin. He says the city authorities have a lot of catching up to do when it comes to meeting business needs. It's getting foreign talent into the city, like getting visas. It's dealing with the financial authorities. Obviously, if they're slow, this is not how you should work with a startup founder who expects you to be like really, really fast. After riots on New Year's Eve led to attacks on firefighters and ambulance crews, the Conservative CDU party called Berlin a failed city-state. It and Conservative press blamed it on, quote, people with a migration background, a euphemism in Germany for anyone who's not white. Back at the bus stop, Atash is still waiting. With Turkish parents, Atash is also considered a person with migration background, even though she was born in Germany. The fact the city won't accept my German passport is not only absurd, it makes me question whether I'm really German in their eyes. She says this kind of structural racism is the other systemic problem Berlin's new city government must address. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, East Boston residents are learning that they may have to help pay for benefits they were meant to receive in compensation for a controversial substation being built by Eversource. And in your forecast, cloudy, windy, and in the mid-40s today. Tonight, we fall to the mid-30s. There's a chance of showers overnight, then sunny, windy, and upper 40s tomorrow. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com slash NSBE. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon today for Valentine's Day delivery of any of our four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. Time is running out. If you want your Valentine to get their Winston flowers on Valentine's Day, you've got to put your order in by noon today. That means you have less than four and a half hours. Don't wait until you've gotten into your workday and you're you're gotten busy with everything you have to do today. Act now and make sure the person you want to show your love for gets their flowers tomorrow. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And here's Emery Sievertson to tell you more. Hey, Rupa. Yeah, and we hope you never really need an excuse to do something a little nice for someone in your life, and especially to to help WBUR out and to show us that you value everything that we bring to you. But because we have this holiday here in our midst, why not? Why not send a little extra, you know, sunshine someone's way? I mentioned earlier that it's it's Valentine's Day for those mm-hmm. who celebrate, and we do have some people when 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 they place their orders, they also send a little message to their their special person, mm-hmm. and we do have some people 
people who have sent uh, roses or any one of these selections to to a friend, to a coworker. Someone said, for my great friend and coworker, you really made a difference. Another person said, to the best roommate, dinner date, shopping buddy, NPR lover, and friend that a girl could ask for. So use this opportunity to support WBUR, send some love our way, and also send some love to anyone in your life who's important. Show them that they matter, because at the heart of this, again, as someone else put on their message, they said, here's something special. Roses for you and NPR for both of us to listen to. Hmm. That's the point. That's the point is that your money uh, can can do two very powerful things. It can support public news information that everyone should have a right to, and it can show someone in your life that they matter, and, and that, that matters to us. So pick up the phone. We have a deadline here noon today if you want to take part in this, uh, or call 1-800-909-9287. Uh, oh, sorry, or go to WBUR.org phone or online. Many, Many ways. options. Yes. Many options to choose from. And Winston Flowers, the flowers from Winston Flowers are really something special. We have some in front of us right now. Winston is a third-generation, family-owned local business, one of the most highly respected florists in the country. So get it done by noon today. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And like Amory said, at WBUR, we're doing everything we can to bring you deep, nuanced local reporting. We know you and your Valentine value that. And so if you can, support your Valentine and support us. Go to WBUR.org or or, again, as Amory said, if calling is easier, you can reach us at 1-800-909-9287. Act by noon today. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, Supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. An electrical substation being built in East Boston by the utility Eversource is not popular with local residents. State officials knew the substation was controversial when they approved it, so they included an unusual caveat. They required Eversource to do something extra to benefit the community. But as it turns out, residents may end up helping to pay for those benefits. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has our story. Deborah Cave has lived in East Boston for 70 years. She loves the sense of community in this diverse neighborhood, and she loves living near the water. But East Boston also has a long history of environmental pollution and industrial activity. So she was really disappointed when the state approved Eversource's electrical substation by Chelsea Creek. It's just one more thing in my lifetime that I'm seeing imposed on this community. Like many of her neighbors, she's worried about the electrical facility flooding and catching fire. She's upset about the loss of open space. And she's angry that an alternative location was never seriously considered. But when the state directed Eversource to work with the community on a plan to mitigate the impacts of the substation, CAVE agreed to help. She's the head of the Eagle Hill Civic Association. If this thing is going to be imposed on us, then we want to make sure that we get something in return. 
Over the summer of 2021, alongside the head of the Salesian Boys and Girls Club, CAVE met several times with representatives from Eversource to work out a community benefits agreement. We would advocate for what the community wanted, and they would push back and say, well, we can't do this, or we can't do that, or we can do this. In the end, they settled on a $1.4 million benefits package. It included things like improving the playground across the street from the substation, fixing up a nearby park, planting more trees, and money for the Boys and Girls Club to install new energy-efficient windows and upgrade its HVAC system. Cave says that while they talked about a lot during these negotiations, who would pay for the benefits never came up. I just thought of Eversource. I thought it was going to come from Eversource. Except that's not how Eversource saw it. Last summer, advocates asked Eversource during a state hearing who would pay for the community benefits agreement. The company responded in a written statement, ratepayers. That means Deborah Cave, her neighbors, and anyone in Massachusetts who pays an electricity bill to Eversource. After WBUR began asking questions about the Community Benefits Agreement, or CBA, the company began giving a new answer. Chris McKinnon is an Eversource spokesman. It is the company's position that the CBA would be a recoverable cost down the road. However, we haven't decided if and how we would go about doing that. In other words, Eversource now says it hasn't decided whether to charge ratepayers for the park and playground upgrades and the new HVAC system, but it says it would be reasonable to do so. And that's not all. Utilities have a special deal. To encourage them to build things like poles, wires, and substations, they get a guaranteed rate of return. Eversource will make a profit from building the East Boston substation, but it could also make money off of this benefits agreement by adding it to the overall cost of construction. This is not mitigation. John Walkie lives near the substation site and works for Green Roots, the nonprofit that's led the fight against the project. Mitigation is, I've done something that's going to damage you or has damaged you, so I'm going to give you some sort of payment as an offset. And this ameliorates nothing because we're paying for it. It's also just a very unusual situation. Community benefits agreements are common in the private sector, But this appears to be the first time the State Energy Siting Board told a utility to work out a deal with the community. The state declined to make anyone available for an interview, but says the Siting Board has no authority over who pays for the benefits. Still, Walkie says the whole idea of the benefits agreement was a token gesture. Just one more instance of the state and a utility giving lip service to environmental justice. It's basically the lipstick on the pig. The amount of money is so low. It's nothing, and the actual impact it will have in the community will be negligible. Now, to be clear, there's nothing illegal about Eversource trying to pass on the cost of the benefits or even making a profit. There's no statute that says you can or cannot charge ratepayers for the costs of a community benefit agreement. This is Ann Berwick. She led the Department of Public Utilities, or DPU, under Governor Deval Patrick. She says that the DPU actually gets the final say about which costs the utilities can recoup and whether they can make a profit. I mean, in some ways, what's illegal is what the DPU says is illegal. Several years from now, after the substation is up and running, Eversource will go before the DPU with the receipts for everything it's built in the last few years. There will be billions of dollars of expenses for the department to scrutinize, So opponents worry that something small, like a million-dollar community benefits agreement, could get lost in the shuffle. 
In the grand scheme of things, if Eversource is allowed to charge ratepayers, people wouldn't see much of an increase on their utility bills. But it risks setting a bad precedent, says David Pomerantz. He's with the Energy Policy Institute, an energy watchdog group. Every utility would love to be able to spend even more money to try to assuage concerns or silence critics or buy community support. If they had license to spend ratepayer money on that, why not spend $100 million? Pomerantz says this risk is real. In the years ahead, as Massachusetts works to cut carbon emissions, it's going to need a lot more electrical infrastructure. He and other advocates worry about creating a pattern where utilities in the state ignore community concerns and then use ratepayer dollars as a Band-Aid. Back in East Boston, Deborah Cave of the Civic Association says this whole process has been discouraging. It really sickens me. It just, it just makes me, it's really disheartening. It is. That's the way I'll sum it up. But for now, she and her neighbors are stuck waiting to see what happens. And in the meantime, down by Chelsea Creek, the substation they fought to stop for the last eight years is being built. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order by noon today for delivery on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. If you're anything like us here in the news business, you work off deadlines. Uh, So you should know, you're on a deadline right now. By noon today, you have to get your order in to WBUR for Winston Flowers so it can be delivered to your Valentine tomorrow. And when you send flowers from WBUR, you help make great reporting possible. That's why you listen every morning. So choose the perfect gift for your special someone at WBUR.org or call us at 1-800-909-9287. Just go to WBUR.org to see the options or again, 1-800-909-9287. And Amory Sievertson is here to tell you more. Yeah, great reporting like you were talking about, uh, Rupa, like this series that our environmental team kicked off with that piece you just heard from Miriam Wasser. You know, we are so uh, fortunate. It's it's thanks to listeners who have given to WBUR in the past that have made it possible for us to have a, a team of environmental reporters who can create a series like like the uh, who can take on the coverage like what you just heard from Miriam Wasser, who can dig into issues, you know, much deeper than than the headlines you might get elsewhere. That's possible because other people have stepped up to the plate. Other people have given to WBUR, have invested in the kind of reporting and storytelling that we bring you. And and that's why we're here. So when we have this opportunity to pair, you know, your love for WBUR and your love for the people in your life that matter, take advantage of that. You only have about four more hours here to get a gift through WBUR that speaks volumes, right? It speaks the volumes of your love for the that special someone in your life, whether it's, you know, your partner or a parent or, um, 
just a good friend, maybe someone who introduced you to WBUR. And it speaks volumes for, for WBUR and what we're able to do, what we're able to keep bringing you. So keep that environmental coverage strong. We know this is not an issue that's going away, unfortunately. And we can bring you, you know, the context, the information that you need, and also a sense of what this means in your life, what's happening in our community here. So support that. This is, you know, when are flowers not just flowers when they bring you this kind of coverage? Mm-hmm. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and see the great choices and and do your part for us and for your special someone. Yeah, The environmental series this week is about PFAS, and those are the so-called forever chemicals. These are things that hang around in our bodies for years, and we're just learning now some of the impact that they have on us. We are bringing you that deep nuanced local reporting so you can do what you need to do to live your life. We know you and your Valentine value that. So like Emery said, you have four more hours. Don't go. That'll go fast. You know how it is at the start of your week. You get busy. Don't forget about what you have to do to show your Valentine and WBUR your love. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-9287, and thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, hosting a conversation with author and social commentator Fran Lebowitz on Thursday, March 9th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. officials say they haven't been able to identify the origins of three unidentified objects shot down by U.S. fighter jets over the weekend. It's Monday, February 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what the subpoena for former Vice President Mike Pence means for the probe into former President Trump. It's not clear right now whether the special counsel also wants answers from Pence about Mar-a-Lago. And it's also not clear whether Pence is going to agree to testify. Also this hour, some GOP congressmen say they're fed up with Representative George Santos. He looks for that attention. Even the negative attention drives him. It's become an embarrassment and a distraction to the Republicans in the House. And a Vermont professor says it's time to rediscover the lost art of just hanging out. I think of this as kind of like seizing time and taking it back from where it's been stolen from us. Hanging out is productive, and the thing that it produces is our relationships with each other. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. Air Force has now shot down three unidentified objects in three days. That's in addition to the Chinese spy balloon brought down off South Carolina earlier this month. The latest mystery object was down yesterday in Lake Huron, just off Michigan. From Michigan Radio, Brett Dahlberg reports radar is involved. Military radar is often calibrated to pick up pretty big, fast-moving objects, like fighter jets or missiles. It's not really looking for small objects moving with the wind. But General Glenn Van Herc says since the recent discovery of a suspected Chinese spy balloon in U.S. skies, the Pentagon is making some changes. Van Herc is commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command. With some adjustments, we've been able to uh, get a better uh, categorization of radar tracks now. Van Herc says that could be one of the reasons for increased detections of these small, slow objects. 
though the Pentagon says it's still trying to figure out exactly what they are. For NPR News, I'm Brett Dahlberg in Grand Rapids. Meanwhile, the U.S. is rejecting China's claims that American balloons have entered Chinese airspace at least 10 times. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says that's not true. The death toll from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has now exceeded 35,000 people. Rescuers say that after a week, it's increasingly unlikely they'll find many more survivors under the rubble. In Israel, thousands of people are gathering in Jerusalem to protest the government's controversial plan to weaken the powers of the judiciary. As NPR's Daniel Estrin reports, Israel's right-wing coalition has held initial votes on the proposal. Israeli media say police estimate at least 10,000 Israelis turned out near parliament. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition has now advanced some of its proposed legislation with an initial vote in a parliamentary committee. The government wants the power to choose judges and to limit the Supreme Court's judicial review. The chief justice of the Supreme Court says that would endanger democracy. President Isaac Herzog called on Netanyahu's coalition to delay the legislation, but it still went ahead with the initial vote. Even President Biden weighed in, telling the New York Times he urges consensus for any major change in Israel. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. The Kansas City Chiefs have now won the Super Bowl twice in the last four years, and both of those times, the Super Bowl's most valuable player was Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Greg Eklund has more from Glendale, Arizona. Patrick Mahomes threw for 182 yards and connected for three touchdown passes, but while likely still feeling the effects of a high ankle sprain he re-injured in the first half, he ran for 26 yards, his longest run of the night, in the final minutes to set up the game-winning field goal. The Chiefs won 38-35. Greg Eklund reporting. You're listening to NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination is investigating a complaint filed by the school superintendent in Wayland. The town school committee placed Superintendent Omar Easy on leave last week. He says that came after he told the committee he was concerned about discrimination. Easy is the town's first black superintendent and says he hasn't been informed about why he's on leave. The Wayland School Committee says it isn't commenting on the complaint. Senator Ed Markey is making another attempt to create federal rules limiting the extra fees some airlines charge. This weekend, Markey announced plans to reintroduce his Families Fly Together Act. Part of that bill would stop airlines from imposing seat selection fees on parents who are traveling with children so they can sit together without paying more. Passengers need an airline bill of rights because airline executives have continuously turned a deaf ear to the complaints of the flying public in our country. The day of reckoning has arrived. Markey is also leading a charge in the Senate to investigate the meltdown at Southwest Airlines around Christmas. The airline has blamed weather and technical problems for the havoc that lasted several days. There's going to be a leadership change in the Massachusetts Democratic Party. Gus Bickford announced over the weekend he is stepping down after six years as chair. He's endorsing former Lieutenant Governor nominee Steve Kerrigan as his successor. He has been a stalwart in the Democratic Party for a number of years. We worked closely together in this past campaign, electing Governor Healy. 
Bickford says Kerrigan also has the governor's support. The state Republican committee is also changing leaders. Washington lobbyist Amy Carnevale beat out controversial chair Jim Lyons earlier this month in a close local committee vote. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. The Celtics beat the Memphis Grizzlies 119-109 to yesterday at the Garden. The Celts will visit the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. In your forecast, mostly cloudy today. Temperatures will get into the mid-40s. Overnight, cloudy with a low in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid to upper 40s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 8.06. WBUR supporters include BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR also supports your lifelong commitment to learning and growing. Order by noon today for delivery on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. That was a bit fast. I'm going to say it really slow. Choose your gift by noon to get it delivered tomorrow to your Valentine. That's the deadline, noon today, uh, less than four hours. And when you send your Valentine Winston Flowers through WBUR, you help make it possible for our great reporters to do the work that digs into things like science and public policy and allows you to hear the voices of people directly affected. Your Valentine will be happy to receive the flowers and proud of your support for WBUR. So go to WBUR.org or call us at 1-800-909-9287 to choose from four options. And Amory Sievertson of our podcast Endless Thread is here to tell you more. Good morning, Rupa. And I want to focus on one of the four choices, which is the flowers of the the flower of the month subscription. Mm-hmm. So you you may, if you've listened during a previous fundraiser, <laughs> uh, have heard us talking about becoming a sustaining member, giving a little bit of money every month to WBUR. And that way, you know that you have our back. We know that you have our back and we can keep the great news and information and coverage that you count on coming. So with this, the Flower of the Month subscription, what you're doing is you are protecting WBUR every month with your gift, but you're also sustaining a relationship in your life. You're giving someone a different arrangement of flowers every month. Right now, it's these gorgeous red and pink rich roses, uh, but they they change them up seasonally. Winston Flowers does. So in March, you'll have bulb flowers like daffodils and hyacinths. In April, you'll have very colorful tulips. May, you've got the peonies, the knockout lilacs, the garden roses. And so every month you're taking care of someone in your life while taking care of your public radio station. It's a great option for for both of us, for everyone in your life. And I just noticed, Rupa, that they say that they deliver them on the first Monday of every month. Mm -hmm. So make Mondays a little bit better. A lot better. For us, for someone important to you, it's just a great option. And again, you have to do all of this by noon today if you want to if you want to get this done. So 1-800-909-9287 is the number or go to WBUR.org. The deadline is noon today. Go to WBUR.org to act fast. Thank you. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. Rescue crews in Turkey and Syria are racing against time as hope to find survivors fades by the hour. It's been a week since a major earthquake hit the region and the death toll has surpassed 35,000. A U.N. official predicts that number will rise to 50,000. Hundreds of thousands are in temporary shelters. The Turkish government says over a million. Some in freezing temperatures with no real idea of what comes next. The international community, though, is stepping up to help. Joining us now to talk about the U.S. government, how they're supporting its NATO ally is Jeff Flake, the U.S. ambassador to Turkey. Ambassador, the U.S. has pledged to provide $85 million in humanitarian aid. How far do you think that money can go, uh, given the great need? Well, there is a great need, obviously, but that will go for food and shelter and winter supplies, uh, health care services, drinking water, hygiene, sanitation supplies. So it's, it's a good initial response, and we already have two uh, USAID-supported uh, urban search and rescue teams that have been here for the past few days, for the past several days, uh, assistant in, assisting in some of these miraculous rescues that, uh, that you've probably seen. And from your talks, uh, Ambassador, with the Turkish government, uh, what's most needed right now? Well, it's shelter. Uh, now that uh, we're going to be moving quickly from the kind of the search and rescue phase uh, to the recovery phase, you still have uh, so many people uh, without shelter. Uh, in the affected area, there are about uh, 21 million people living. And even if their buildings uh, didn't collapse, many of them are unsafe and people are afraid to go back into their uh, their accommodation. So a lot of uh, tents and uh, and winter supplies because it is cold here. I'm I'm down at uh, Injulik Air Base right now. If you can maybe be able to hear the helicopters in the background uh, loading up supplies to take to the affected areas. Does it look at all like it might be warming up anytime soon? Have you heard anything like that? It, it is warmer today than it has been, uh, but it's still cold. And uh, obviously there's snow-capped mountains all around us here in Adana and uh, some of the other areas, uh, Adiaman, uh, where our crews are working with alongside their Turkish counterparts is, is even colder. Because the weather changing would be one amazing way to help if that could be somehow possible, right? I mean, it, it's so, so cold that it's making rescue efforts difficult. You bet. It, it, it makes everything uh, more difficult. Uh, so it's been uh, much below the, the edge here. And so that's just uh, one more difficult thing to overcome. And I know that uh, with only one recognized border crossing, uh, the aid is uh, not necessarily getting to the rebel-held northwest part of Syria. And the U.S. is, is urging the UN Security Council to vote immediately to authorize two more crossings. Uh, Ambassador, how does the United States make sure that the aid actually gets the places and people that need it, considering how shaky the security situation can be there? It is far more difficult, in, uh, particularly in northwest Syria, where you have a mix of uh, regime-controlled areas and uh, rebel-controlled areas or opposition areas. And uh, But we have uh, humanitarian partners that are working there for a while that are providing relief irrespective of uh, who controls the area. Uh, we just want to provide humanitarian relief. Uh, obviously, it's more difficult given the, the situation. Uh, Turkey is in a, in a better place there because you have a, a very functioning government capable and experienced, uh, just kind of overwhelmed everyone is by this tragedy. In these kinds of situations, do troops get involved uh, when it comes to getting the aid to where it needs to go? We have, I mentioned I'm at Injurlik Air Base now, and uh, our military is involved in terms of coordination. We're only uh, 
uh, acting, uh, you know, at the request of our Turkish counterparts. Uh, but we have flown a number of missions with uh, Blackhawks, for example, to get needed uh, relief workers and supplies uh, to these certain areas. Uh, we're standing up uh, some field hospitals, our, our military is, as well as uh, we're doing that in partnership with uh, uh, Samaritan's Purse and other uh, nonprofit organizations. That is U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, Jeff Flake. The special counsel investigating former President Donald Trump's role in the January 6th attacks subpoenaed former Vice President Mike Pence late last week. It is not yet clear if Pence will comply with the subpoena, but the move could prove to be a milestone in the Justice Department's ongoing investigations. Trump has previously attempted to block testimony from his allies in regards to January 6th, and he could try to legally challenge this Pence subpoena, too. For more, we are joined now by Renato Mariano former federal prosecutor. Welcome to the show, sir. Happy to be here. So Trump's lawyers may try to fight off this subpoena on the grounds of executive privilege. Can you explain that to us? How could that work? Sure. So executive privilege is uh, essentially a doctrine that says that close advisors to the president and the president himself um, do have a certain amount of privilege that shields them from discovery from other branches of government. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more difficult to assert executive privilege when the executive branch itself is conducting a criminal investigation. And so courts have repeatedly held that where there's a need uh, for a criminal investigation to obtain uh, evidence that can't be obtained elsewhere, um, that that overrides executive privilege. And could Mike Pence, the former vice president, challenge the subpoena on similar grounds? He could. I think he would he would have uh, he would also likely be unsuccessful. Got it. So the DOJ's January 6th investigation has been going on for quite some time now. Can you explain why the subpoena was issued now? Well, it certainly suggests that. Um, first of all, that Jack Smith, the special counsel, is pursuing this aspect of his investigation um, very vigorously. In other words, he is uh, very taking the January 6th part of the investigation seriously. He views that as a viable um, uh, avenue for potential charges, which is interesting because I think many have speculated that perhaps he'd be more focused on the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Mm-hmm. It also suggests that his investigation, at least as to this aspect, uh, the the uh, decertification of the vote or the, the sending of electoral votes back to the states, that portion of the investigation is very far along because Mike Pence is the sort of witness you would talk to later in that investigation rather than early on. Got it. I actually want to ask you a follow-up there. I mean, you're suggesting that, that this is an indication, for example, that the January 6th investigation is quite far along then at this point by issuing the subpoena of Mike Pence because he was involved in, in some of that fake elector scheme or not involved. But, you know, he's spoken very publicly about the president's attempt to overturn the election. That's correct. And in fact, I mean, given that other aides were present uh, during conversations, as all of us in the public heard, te- you know, testimony mm-hmm. to Congress, uh, those Aides could have testified regarding a, a lot of the activities surrounding that. And so I would expect those aides would have all been interviewed first, which would have put Mike Pence later in the line of witnesses to be interviewed. You know, one of the things that I have been kind of puzzling over myself, I cover politics as my day job, is whether Mike Pence and Donald Trump have the same calculations uh, in mind here. And I understand you cannot necessarily read into either one of their minds. But would the Department of Justice have issued the subpoena if it thought Mike Pence would not talk? 
It's a great question. I, I think they, they, the, the latter part is the, is the harder part to answer. In other words, um, I think in an ordinary circumstance, you might, I mean, in other words, they might've issued the subpoena, um, you know, in, if they had not, even if, um, even if they thought there was some, there, there might be some legal challenge, um, if they thought, for example, that in the end of the day, um, Mike Pence wouldn't take the fifth. Now, I will just say here, um, I don't think there would be a basis for Mike Pence to do so. I don't think he's done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think the calculus for Mike Pence and Donald Trump is very different. In other words, Donald Trump is, uh, you know, a subject of this investigation. It's it's apparent that they're trying to build charges against him. Mike Pence is a witness or a victim, depending on the way you look at it. I mean, he was uh, not involved, as you mentioned a moment ago. Um, and so really the calculus is entirely different for him. And of course, I think that's what the Justice Department is counting on. Mm -hmm. How important do you think Mike Pence's testimony would be towards indicting the former president? I think it would be pivotal uh, if Mike Pence, for example, um, said that, you know, he you know, the, the president was trying to pressure him to do something that was plainly illegal, um, that he was, uh, you know, trying to, um, uh, you know, essentially uh, ask Pence to set the law aside. I think that would be very different than testimony in which Pence said that he thought that Trump was just uh, repeating legal theories given to him by his lawyers and didn't take it very seriously and didn't push that hard. In other words, those two versions of the same mm -hmm. the same conversation are very different. And I do think that uh, Pence ultimately could be very important witness to the special counsel or could potentially undermine his case. Mm -hmm. we, we've got about a minute left. And I wanted to ask that in the event that the former vice president does testify, what specifically do you anticipate the special counsel is trying to seek out from him? A great question. I mean, first of all, I think that uh, primarily the special counsel is going to be focused on conversations between Mike Pence and, and Donald Trump, in which no one else was present, because Mike Pence, of course, uh, is the only person who could testify regarding those conversations. And I think he's also going to be interested in in what how Pence regarded the efforts by Trump to pressure him to um, set aside the electoral votes or send them back to the states. In other words, did he feel threatened? Did he feel pressured? And did it, it, it appear that this was not a legal strategy, but rather uh, a, some sort of unlawful attempt to overturn the election? That's former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR listeners in Boston and beyond. Order by noon today for Valentine's Day delivery of any of our four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. 
Choose your gift by noon for Winston Flowers to deliver it tomorrow on Valentine's Day. It doesn't take long, although it may be tough to decide between the four options. They're all really wonderful. Go to WBUR.org or call us at 1-800-909-9287 by noon to put your order in. Many WBUR listeners have made it an annual tradition to send these flowers to their loved ones. Um, Amory Sievertson is here with me. And think about it, Amory. We know people here are all about showing their love and supporting love. After all, this is the first state to allow same-sex couples to wed. I also like bringing up famous local romances like John and Abigail Adams, who were known for their steamy love letters. Times are tough, (laughs) and it's important, especially now, to show our love for the people in our lives that we care about. Go to WBUR.org by noon today or call us at one 800 909 That's right. You can't screw up Valentine's Day when you when you make a gift through WBUR because you're pairing two great things. You're pairing your support and your love for your public radio station with your love for someone special in your life. And I love that people have have taken to this. So one person said gifts for you are hard to choose, but at least this one supports the news. (laughs) That was their message with their gift. Quite clever. Someone else said happy Valentine's and support public radio day. Let's keep enjoying our mutual support of good journalism together. I love this, Rupa. I, I think this is going to stick. It's like how Halloween is about costumes and candy. <laughs> Valentine's Day can be about promoting love and supporting your public radio station. Someone else wrote, the gift of these roses ward off the blues and also helps deliver the news. Happy (laughs) Valentine's Day. So make this part of your tradition that you're always going to get Valentine's Day right because you're going to get these gorgeous flowers from Winston Flowers. You're going to be, you know, telling someone important in your life that they matter to you. And you're going to be supporting WBUR. It's a win, 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 win all the way around. And all you have to do is make that phone call or go to WBUR.org before noon today. The number is 1-800-909-9287 or give online, WBUR.org. You have three and a half hours. Do it before you get busy today. Send flowers from WBUR and show your loved one that you care. Go to WBUR.org or call us at 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm A. Martinez. The dismissal of a part time reporter late last year at West Virginia Public Broadcasting has opened a window onto years of political pressure on the station. That pressure has come from the highest reaches of state government. Here's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. Let's start back in November. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Amelia Farrell nicely reported on allegations that state health officials had ignored signs of abuse at state-run facilities. 
Reports of people with disabilities being strangled, being forced to use the bathroom outside, and dying from inappropriate nutrition. Nicely's story kicked off a firestorm. The state secretary of health wrote an eight and a half page letter demanding the story be retracted. The story remains on the station's website. But later that month, the health secretary, Bill Crouch, appeared on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. He was interviewed not by Nicely, but by news director Eric Douglas. Let's talk about that. What, what, what were some of the issues you had with the, the article itself? Yeah, I was uh, very concerned about that. Uh, I, I thought the information was uh, misleading and, uh, and, and, uh, and not really portrayed uh, properly or fairly in, in any way. That is what listeners heard. Here's what listeners did not hear. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's chief executive, Butch Antolini, ordered that interview up. And here's something else to know about him. He used to be Governor Jim Justice's top public relations aide. Antolini had demanded that Douglas, his news director, send him the questions ahead of time so he could veto or shape them. And he sat feet away from the two men, in studio, to make sure it went the way he wanted. That's according to three people with direct knowledge. Crouch's own spokesperson said a few weeks later that Antolini and he have been friends for decades. None of this, none of it, is the way independent journalism is supposed to work. Just to be clear, listeners heard a top state official doing damage control orchestrated by the station's own chief executive. Jesse Wright was West Virginia Public Broadcasting's news director from 2015 to 2020. He left before Antolini arrived. And he says the Justice Administration frequently complained about coverage, but the station batted it away. The press acts as a check and a balance on government. And to be effective in that role, that press needs to have its independence. It needs to be free from interference from the people that it covers. It's not that uncommon for states to own public media outlets. Accusations of political pressure on those outlets, however, are pretty rare. Nicely was pulled off her reporting in early December after the health secretary's complaints, and she was later dismissed at Antolini's direction. I spoke to 20 people for this story. They say what happened to Nicely was just the latest instance of a pattern of political pressure from the Justice Administration that dated back to news coverage of this. The West Virginia billionaire and Democratic candidate for governor failed to pay more than a million dollars in new mine safety penalties, according to federal accounting data. That billionaire coal baron was Jim Justice. The governor switched parties and is no longer a billionaire, but the fines kept mounting. And NPR's Howard Burkus covered the story for years. It showed he was the top delinquent with nearly $3 million in unpaid fines. Journalists from West Virginia Public Broadcasting reported on it too, often with Burkus. In his first year in office in 2017, Governor Justice sought to kill all funding for the station. The state legislature ultimately cut a million dollars. Top station executives warned against stories that would anger justice or other state officials. Among the journalists there was Roxy Todd. We all knew that our jobs could go at any moment if politicians fought that hard enough. Todd was then a reporter and producer for the show Inside Appalachia. Governor Justice's presence was always looming over us. In 2021, a powerful state senator pushed once more to eliminate funding. That failed after a public outcry. Later that year, a board appointed by justice gave Antolini the top job at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Again, Roxy Todd. When I questioned him about his role within our newsroom, he expressed to me that he had the final say on which stories would be 
aired and which would be killed. And that gave me some concern. Todd left. The governor's office and the former health secretary did not respond to my request for comment. The station wouldn't answer my questions. In a written statement, Antolini rejected any accusation of political interference. He says Amelia Nicely was let go after the station hired a full-time reporter. Nicely is back reporting at the State House, but for a small newspaper, not for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. A special committee of the state legislature is investigating. David Folkenflick, NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Rescue teams are working around the clock to search for survivors one week after a powerful earthquake devastated parts of Turkey and Syria. Jeff Flake, the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, says the Biden administration has been working to fast-track assistance to both countries. You still have uh, so many people uh, without shelter. The affected area, there are about uh, 21 million people living. And even if their buildings uh, didn't collapse, many of them are unsafe. The U.S. has pledged $85 million in humanitarian assistance. Three United Nations human rights experts are planning to conduct an official fact-finding trip in April to investigate the institutionalized police culture in the United States. Lisa Schlein in Geneva has more. The UN human rights experts condemn the routine excessive use of tasers, especially against people who appear to pose no danger. They say such weapons can cause death, serious body injuries, and permanent disability. Responding to the death of Tyree Nichols, the experts are urging U.S. authorities to reform the existing police culture that permits deadly assault under the guise of law enforcement and public safety. That's Lisa Schlein reporting. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. When the state approved a controversial electrical substation in East Boston two years ago, it did so with an unusual caveat. It directed the utility behind the project, Eversource, to compensate the community for the burden of the substation. Eversource and local groups signed a so-called community benefits agreement. But as WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, the community may have to help pay for these benefits. The $1.4 million agreement included money to plant trees, improve a public playground, and install energy-efficient appliances at a boys' and girls' club. While many community members assumed Eversource would pay for these things, the company says it may pass on the cost to ratepayers, including those who live in East Boston. This is not mitigation. John Walkie works for Green Roots, the nonprofit that's led the fight against the substation. Walkie says mitigation reduces the damage of a project or provides some sort of offset. And this ameliorates nothing because we're paying for it. Eversource says the substation will help with reliability. Construction on the project began last month. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering ways to prevent people from posting the personal information of others online in attempts to harass or intimidate them. That's often called doxing. The Salem News reports lawmakers are considering bills to allow people to file lawsuits over malicious harassment. Another bill would allow that kind of harassment to be investigated as a civil rights violation. The state is expanding a safety system designed to prevent wrong-way crashes on highways. That system can detect when a driver is going the wrong way on a highway on-ramp and try to alert them to their mistake. Beginning tonight, a number of ramps on Interstate 93, Route 6, and Route Route 3 will be closed so that system can be installed. The state says there have been more than 2,000 wrong-way crashes in the last decade. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's Black Mental Health Graduate Academy, supporting and mentoring grad students in mental health counseling and psychology. WilliamJames.edu. The Celtics won their fourth straight game yesterday. They beat the Memphis Grizzlies 119-109 to at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, it's the final round of the Men's College Hockey Beanpot Tournament for the first time in the event's 70-year history. Northeastern and Harvard will face off for the title. In your forecast, mostly overcast and windy today with a high in the mid-40s. Tonight, still overcast and a low in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, clear skies with temperatures rising to the upper 40s. Right now, it's 39 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. For the second time in four years, the Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions. Last night in Glendale, Arizona, in a stadium that looks like a grounded spaceship, Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes put on his latest otherworldly performance. Fighting off the pain of a sprained ankle, he led the Chiefs to a second-half comeback and a nail-biting 38-35 win over the Philadelphia Eagles. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman is here. Tom, since I know all the sports cliches, I'm going to start with one. It was a tale of two halves. (laughs) That's a good one, eh? Uh, Yeah, first half, the Eagles were the dominant team they'd been all season, led by their great young quarterback, Jalen Hurts. And a strong defense, they went out to a 10-point lead at halftime. Now, particularly worrying for Kansas City, late in the half, quarterback Patrick Mahomes aggravated that high ankle sprain he suffered earlier in the playoffs. So as Rihanna took the halftime stage high above the field, and kudos to her for performing so well. Obviously, she trusted the wires holding up her platform. But while she was singing, Chiefs head coach Andy Reid told the NFL Network he was worrying about that ankle. He goes in at halftime and 
I'm going, are you okay? And he goes, can you, you, know, can you do this? Can you, I can do everything. Just leave me alone and let me go play. And he sure did. He led the Chiefs to three second-half touchdowns and the drive that resulted in the winning field goal by Kansas City with eight seconds left. That drive, of course, included Mahomes' gutty 26-yard run up the middle of the field on that painful ankle. Yeah, and Mahomes had help from his friends, too. He sure did. Uh, He couldn't have done it without the great work by his running backs, his wide receivers, his stellar tight end, Travis Kelsey, and especially his offensive line. We love to give those offensive linemen uh, publicity. Those five big guys paid to protect Mahomes did just that. One of the stories going into the game was Philly's fierce pass rush, and Mahomes noted afterwards how the Chiefs' offensive linemen had heard that story over and over. I think those guys got caught up with getting asked every single week what they were going to do against this defensive line, and they took it as a challenge. And uh, they they responded, and we told them early in the week, I said, if y'all play great, we'll win this football game, and they did. And A, as great as they were, Mahomes got the hardware. He won the Super Bowl MVP award to go with his second league MVP award that he won last week. And, you know, this is solidifying the belief that Mahomes, only 27 years old, already is among the greats. Yeah, and Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts had a great game. Unfortunately, it was on a loss. Yeah, he did. His coach, Nick Sirianni, said Hertz played the best game since the two have been together the last couple of years. Hertz ran for 70 yards and three rushing touchdowns, over 300 yards passing and one passing TD. Great leadership, smart decision-making. With one big boo-boo in the second quarter, Hertz fumbled. The Chiefs scooped it up and scored a defensive touchdown. But really, both quarterbacks were outstanding. They not only made history as the first two black quarterbacks to play against each other in a Super Bowl, they made it an exciting game. And then with history also being made on the halftime show stage, I mean, this one seems to have lived up to the hype. History. It was confirmed that Rihanna was the first known pregnant halftime performer at a Super Bowl. But yeah, this one was very good. The expectations for Super Bowls are so absurd. The buildup for two weeks, then game day with hours of pregame stuff, the high-octane mix of commercialism and militarism, and then finally you got a football game to play, and it often doesn't rise above the height, but this one did. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Tom, thanks. You're welcome. Republicans are urging Congressman George Santos to keep his head down while ethics probes and investigations play out. But the freshman from New York, who was caught lying about his resume and his personal life, is refusing to comply. Instead, Santos is punching back and now appears to be trying to grab even more attention. NPR's Brian Mann reports. When Senator Mitt Romney of Utah entered the House last week for the State of the Union speech, he found himself face-to-face with George Santos, the scandal-plagued freshman from Long Island, had positioned himself front and center in the crowd. He was standing right there in the aisle, shaking hands with everybody. Romney was outraged and told reporters later he scolded Santos and told him he should resign. Uh, But he shouldn't be there, and and, uh, if he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. Only, George Santos is refusing to fade back. He actually seems to be leveraging his notoriety, appearing on conservative news outlets and trolling other Republicans on social media. Congressman Nick Lilota, a Republican who represents a neighboring district in New York, vented his party's frustration during an appearance on CNN. He's a sociopath, George Santos. He looks for that attention. Even the negative attention drives him. It's become an embarrassment and a distraction to the Republicans in the House. And every time I have to come to something like this and talk about George Santos, I can't talk about what Republicans ought to be doing instead. David Wasserman covers the House for the Cook Political Report. He says Santos is following a political playbook in the Trump era, one where politicians don't back down. Donald Trump realized 
shamelessness can pay off politically. We've seen others follow in his footsteps. Now, of course, this is to an unprecedented degree. Unprecedented because Santos fabricated his entire professional resume and invented a fictional life story that involved the Holocaust, 9-11, the Pulse nightclub shooting. He's no longer serving on his two House committees, and he now faces multiple investigations, including a probe by the Nassau County District Attorney in New York, herself a Republican. But Wasserman says even facing all this pressure, Santos has no incentive to stay quiet. George Santos isn't someone who's going to take direction from the elder statesmen of the Republican Party, his ability to stay in the news and draw attention to himself is really the only thing he has left. Most of the controversy surrounding Santos involves things he allegedly did before he was elected in November. There are big questions about where he got hundreds of thousands of dollars that funded his campaign. But Santos, who hasn't responded to NPR's request for an interview, faced a new scandal last week. A former volunteer in his congressional office filed a complaint with Capitol Police accusing the congressman of sexual misconduct, an allegation Santos has denied. House Democrats, hoping to keep Santos's troubles front and center, introduced a resolution last week to expel him from office. Here's Congresswoman Becca Ballant from Vermont. As a, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, outraged that he lied about the Pulse nightclub shooting as the granddaughter of someone killed in the Holocaust, outraged that he used that to get elected. And, um, you know, I didn't ever thought I'd say this, but I stand with Mitt Romney. He has to go. But that measure would require a two-thirds vote from House members, and no one thinks that's likely to happen. Everyone interviewed for this story said they believe Santos will keep his job and his megaphone, at least until voters get another crack at him in 2024. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina, joked about her party's Santos problem at last week's Washington Press Club dinner. But Santos certainly gets attention. There hasn't been a Republican that's gotten this much buzz since Lauren Boebert went through a metal detector. Republicans could pay a price for Santos's attention grabbing. The GOP did well in New York during the midterms, but with Santos in the spotlight, several GOP seats, including his own, could be vulnerable in 2024. Brian Mann, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, a Vermont professor is fighting for our right to, ju to just hang out. In your forecast, cloudy, windy, and in the mid-40s today. Tonight we fall to the mid-30s. There's a chance of showers overnight, then sunny, windy, and upper 40s tomorrow. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving Greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org. And Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. 
This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Like Gabriella said, you should send flowers through WBUR so you can show your love for your Valentine and at the same time support local journalism. So get your order in by noon to have your Winston flowers delivered to your special someone tomorrow. One more time, noon today is the deadline. Don't put it off and regret later that you didn't get to it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And I'm so glad to be joined by Emory Sievertson this morning. Good morning, Rupa. Yeah, and as Gabriella's story demonstrates, this doesn't have to be a gift just for a romantic Valentine. Mm -hmm. You know, she's sending them to her parents. Maybe you want to send them to the person who introduced you to WBUR. Or maybe it's your parents that instilled uh, a deep respect and love and appreciation for public radio. Give flowers to that person. Give back to them. You know, and as we're talking about all these flowers and beautiful things, I can't help but think about the climate, the environment, something that WBUR has poured a lot of uh, time and attention and resource to over the last several years and will keep devoting time and attention and resource to because it matters. We have a series that's kicking off tomorrow all about PFAS. These are these uh, kind of long-lasting chemicals. They break down really slowly over time. They're often found in drinking water. And our WBUR climate reporters are digging into water safety and and what happens when PFAS enter our bodies, whether they're in your drinking water, what not only what you need to know, but what this means for your life. So you're investing in that kind of coverage, things that matter to you. And you're investing also at the same time that you're supporting someone you love. So this just makes so much sense. Do it right now. You only have until noon today to take advantage of this. Support the people you love. Support the journalism you need. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or go to WBUR.org. Just a little more than three hours left. WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And the wife of Wilsden at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith starts February 25th, amrep.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. How often do you just hang out? Calling friends, texting them, or chatting on social media doesn't count. We're defining hangout as spending time with people without having much of a plan. In this overscheduled, hyper-digital world, your answer might be not much or even never. WBUR's Andrea Shea spoke with the Vermont author of a new book who's fighting for our right to reclaim the practice of hanging out. Seems there was a time when people were pretty good at just hanging out. In the 90s, a bunch of movies reveled in lollygagging, including director Richard Linklater's Slacker. Hey, what's up? Hey, not much. How's it going? All right. What are you guys up to tonight? Not much, just kind of talking. 
kind of hanging out. You yeah. remember, um, I was telling you about my roommate's band. This meandering navel gazer follows a series of random characters around Austin. We see people hanging out, doing what they would do on a normal day, having normal conversations. It creates this document of social activity. There's no clear plot in Slacker, but Sheila Liming, a professor at Champlain College in Vermont, says real life doesn't have one either. For her... Hanging out means daring to do not very much and daring to do it in the presence of other people. Liming explores why it's daring and valuable in her new book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. When we spend time with each other without having a real agenda placed upon that time or how it has to be spent, what we get to produce is our connections and our social atmosphere, the world that we live in. But this teacher of literary criticism and cultural studies fears the art of unstructured socializing might be going extinct. When I walk down the street these days in Burlington, I see people wearing headphones to avoid having to talk to each other or to avoid having to get into interactions where they might have to talk to somebody they don't know or else don't want to talk to. Hanging Out is part memoir, part manifesto. It's a humorous, personal, academic, and pop cultural ride through how our social lives have shifted over time. Liming's treatise urges us to engage in the benefits of casual encounters and conversations at parties, on the job, with strangers, over a meal, even while jamming if you're a musician. But, Liming says, the rise of social media and cell phones have made chilling together more challenging. I think one of the things that the smartphone did was it convinced us that our audience is elsewhere. It's not even something that I'm trying to necessarily judge. It's more something that I'm trying to understand. Why we would want to have conversations with people that are not present, as opposed to trying to engage with the people who are. Scrolling and texting pull us away from the people around us, Liming says. You might relate to what happened last Christmas when she suggested her extended family watch a movie together. And I think I'm the only one who watched it because everybody else was on their phone the whole time. Liming believes we've developed bad social posture. Isolating because of the pandemic hasn't helped. In the book, I use the metaphor of musculature a lot, like thinking about how you have to kind of like train these muscles to be in shape to do certain things. I feel like those muscles have really slackened. Liming has talked to plenty of people who want to get back in social shape, but they're struggling. She says, it's like we've forgotten how to hang out. Maybe you felt like you can't just drop by a friend's house or even call them without scheduling first. Liming thinks we're assuming everybody is already super busy and super planned, and any second we're not being productive is a waste. Her book is a call to fight against that drumbeat. I think of this as kind of like seizing time and taking it back from where it's been stolen from us. And that includes with like the workday that has just extended beyond all means of rationality. Hanging out is productive and the thing that it produces is our relationships with each other. If you need help finding your inner slacker, Liming invites you to start by putting your phone face down on the table. Or better yet, throw it out the window. Take off your coat. Pull up a chair, grab yourself a beverage, hang out for a bit. Liming admits she's no expert at hanging out, but she hopes she won't be alone in giving it a shot. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we recap the most effective commercials of Super Bowl 2023. Then at 9 on the BBC NewsHour, the latest on the earthquake in Turkey and Syria and the trouble in getting relief supplies to survivors. It's 8.52. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Technology is changing the way that doctors treat epilepsy. We were able to see that there was one specific region of his brain that was really the driver of most of his seizures. I'm Juana Summers. How researchers, high-tech sensors, tiny lasers, and robots are reshaping treatment on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Overcast today and windy with temperatures rising to the mid-40s. Those fall to the mid-30s tonight. Overnight, there's a chance of rain, sunny and windy tomorrow in the upper 40s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 8.53. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm A. Martinez. In addition to the Kansas City Chiefs' down-to-the-wire win against the Philadelphia Eagles, Sunday's Super Bowl featured Rihanna in a halftime performance that left fans celebrating online and wondering if she was expecting. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says Rihanna's performance entertained better than most of the big game's commercials. From the moment she kicked off the TV-friendly version of her 2015 hit, Better Have My Money, Rihanna brought a Super Bowl-sized spectacle to the Apple Music halftime show, singing from an illuminated platform suspended high in the air. In a 13-minute set, Rihanna sung hits like We Found Love and Only Girl in the World, surrounded by a football field's worth of backup dancers clad in white jumpsuits with hoodies and black sunglasses. Producers of the television broadcast excelled in capturing the visual grandeur, sending cameras swooping through the dancers in tightly choreographed moves. But fans online were talking as much about Rihanna's appearance. The singer had a bulge at her stomach that made her look as if she might be pregnant. And after the performance, media outlets, including the Associated Press and Rolling Stone, reported her representatives had confirmed she was indeed expecting her second child. Given that news, Rihanna's triumphant performance was even more impressive. How many other music stars could hold the attention of an entire stadium and a likely 100 million TV viewers suspended high in the air while pregnant? If only the commercials in the big game were as good. But one of the most talked about ads was also something of a head fake. M&M's candies made headlines before the game saying they were pausing use of animated spokescandy characters, which had drawn the ire of some political commentators after they were revamped to be more inclusive. Instead, comic actress Maya Rudolph took over, adding clams to the candy. The company revealed in a commercial after the game that the characters were coming back. I'm glad to be back because this is what I was made for. I mean, as a walking, talking candy, my options are pretty limited. Given that advertisers paid up to $7 million per 30 seconds for ad time, there were a lot of clunkers, including John Travolta singing a retooled version of his hit song from the musical Grease, Summer Nights for T-Mobile. Home internet with a pain in the... Hey, neighbor! A roast that featured Jeff Ross and other stand-up comics making fun of the planner's mascot, Mr. Peanut. I'll make this quick, Mr. Peanut. I know you got some brownies to ruin. 
and a commercial for a new movie about the superhero The Flash, with Michael Keaton delivering a line he first made famous back in 1989. I'm Batman. Okay, that one sounded pretty cool. But it's telling that one of the evening's most heartwarming commercials came from the Farmer's Dog Pet Food Company, featuring a young woman growing old with a trusty dog she promises to take care of forever. It's a truism of Super Bowl advertising, a powerful story with a cute puppy always trumps big celebrities or high-priced spectacles. I'm Eric Deggins. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, banning meetings has become a popular idea in business circles recently. But does wiping work calendars clean make sense for everybody? And is there such a thing as a good meeting? To hear the story, listen or stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. Order yours by noon today for delivery on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. Time is running out. You have just three hours left. Don't leave it to the last minute. If you want to send Winston Flowers through WBUR, you only have until noon. If you want them to receive that on Valentine's Day, it's important to be part of the effort to support this vital source of conversation and news. And it's important to show your love for your Valentine. So choose the perfect gift for your special someone at WBUR.org or call us at one 800 909 9287. Amory Sievertson, take it away. Yeah, you know, when we're talking about combining love for WBUR and for that special someone, here's a message that someone left in uh, the little card that you submit when you when you buy your flowers through us. They said, Happy Valentine's Day to my love, who loves WBUR and me. <laughs> so got your priorities straight there. You're, you're, you're doing more with your dollars when you give a gift through WBUR. Now, number one, you're going to get the most beautiful flowers in the area. I mean, you, you have these four choices of the one or two dozen long stem red roses. You can do a flower of the month subscription so that someone important in your life gets flowers every month. Or we have this incredible ultimate romance arrangement, which I'll talk more about pretty soon. But I want to share more of these messages because this really does get to the heart of supporting WBUR while supporting someone important in your life. Someone else said, I love this tradition. I give to WBUR while sending flowers to the biggest NPR fan I know. It's feeding two birds with one scone, people. It's brilliant. (laughs) Someone else says, Happy Valentine's Day to my NPR-loving sweetie. How lucky we are to have found each other in this world. Oh, I love these I know, messages. That's so sweet. I love these messages because it just shows that these people really get it, that this is really about protecting the things and the people that are important in your life. And you can do that when you give a gift through WBUR. You show someone how much they matter, whether it's your romantic partner or just a friend who could use a little extra love right now. You're sending them a little bit of that extra love while sending us a little extra love, which is so important because you make up the majority of the funding that makes WBUR possible. So when your dollars can go further, when you can do more with them, why not take advantage of that? three hours left to do so, call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. 
The deadline is noon today. We can't say it enough. You only have until noon today to send flowers through WBUR, to send Winston flowers through WBUR. Imagine how your Valentine will feel when they get a box of flowers elegantly presented from Winston Flowers. See the flowers, choose the perfect gift for your special someone at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.